0: I'm going to say a name. I don't know if you know this name. Do you know Peter Popoff? Do you guys know the name Peter? Does anybody here know the name Peter Popoff, if I say that name? If you do, you're probably getting nervous if I start quoting Peter Popoff at this point. So Peter Popoff was a, uh, he's a, he's, what do you call Peter Popoff? Peter <laughs> Popoff. He is a, uh, I guess you'd call him a televangelist of sorts. He's a faith healer, or at least he claims to be a a faith healer. In the 1980s, there was actually an investigation done. Um, Investigative journalists and skeptics, skeptics like James Randi or the Amazing Randi, if you've ever heard of him before, uh, they tried to expose uh, Popoff uh, because they thought he was up to some shenanigans uh, with his healing services. And it turns out that he might have been. It's actually, uh, they pulled out uh, radio transmissions and they realized that he had an earpiece in his ear. And what would happen during the broadcast is his wife would be telling him the ailments of people in the crowd that she had gone around and talked to them and made notes. And so then he would say, God has revealed to me and say something very specific about your ailment, but she's feeding him the information. James Randi and the investigators were able to tune into the transmissions, and so they were able to show them in news uh, stories. They were able to show side-by-side side him in the actual broadcast and then the transmissions that he was receiving and play those. Well, as you could imagine, uh, giving and donations uh, went down pretty quick <laughs> after that broadcast. Around, after 1986, the, the numbers uh, fell at that point, and it, it, we realize in that that there's a, there's a kind of an axiom for life. Uh, you discredit the message you discredit the messenger, right? If you can discredit the message, uh, you're going to discredit the messenger. And that's, that's what happened with Popoff. Though amazingly, Popoff is still shows up on TV and his ministry still continues to this day. Um, people still send in donations. Right, we should just pause there for a second and do some <laughs> introspection on that one. A big issue at the point of Galatians at this point when we come into, uh, start at the end of chapter one and start heading into chapter two is this, this sense that is the gospel that they received legit, right? We talked last week about this second gospel, this different gospel, but the question at this point is, is the message that they received a legitimate message? Is it for real? Uh, it's one thing to call out other gospels and say they're second gospels or they're not actual true or authentic, but it's quite another thing to go then the gospel that I'm proclaiming, that I'm preaching, or that the apostle Paul's saying, is that one then in a legitimate expression? And so as we come to this portion of our text, we come to a place where the community here is asking that same type of question. Uh, The pseudo-gospel that's being proclaimed, or if Paul's message is a pseudo-gospel, it would mean that Paul himself is a pseudo-apostle. And you can just imagine here the question, Paul, prove yourself. Prove yourself right now. Tell us that you're for real. And that's where he moves to at this point. And if we've ever had that same question posed to us, if you've ever been asked that question to prove yourself, to demonstrate that you're for real, that uh, what you're saying and doing is true and honest and authentic, if you've ever been asked that type of question, whether in work or your family life or any type of setting in life, you know how Paul's feeling at this moment. You can imagine that there might be a, a little bit of defensiveness that might rise up in you. And you can understand why Paul's urgency here in this letter is to set the record straight here early on in the Galatian letter. But look what Paul does. He doesn't get defensive, though. Instead, he issues an apologetic. Puts together not defensiveness, but a real defense for who he is, an explanation of really what he's been up to. Know what he says to the question of authority when people question that. He says, consider the source. Early in, uh, in last week's reading, we saw that uh, Paul's source for the gospel message that he proclaimed in verse 12 was through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The source of that gospel is not only a message that's God-sourced, but we'll actually read in verses 15 through 18, again in last week's text, that Paul himself is a messenger who was called uh, by Jesus Christ. To the question of authenticity. So not just a question of authority, but now a question of authenticity. Again, Paul would say, consider the source here. One of the charges that appears to be emerging here in these early chapters is that Paul and his message have been compromised, that Paul's a sellout, that he has somehow embraced a life of people-pleasing more so than coming with something that is honest and authentic. And here's the thing, when Paul is presented with this challenge, when they say to him, uh, your you're not authentic. You're, you're not real. Your message is, is not there. No, nobody says here uh, about uh, what it means to be Jewish. Paul says, I know all about that. Verse 13. And certainly I know what it means to be zealous, he goes on to say. So you can charge me with not being Jewish enough, and you can charge me with not being zealous enough, but I have the credentials that show I know exactly what that looks like. I know exactly what that means, and the message I'm now proclaiming is a legitimate message. Now, if I would have come to you and said all those things, i said, here's my defense, here's who I am, here's, who I, here's the message, here's the messenger, here's my authority, here's all these things, and it was just me talking, you would say to me, prove it. Your testimony alone is not enough to prove to me that what you're saying is legit, and it's not enough to tell me that what you're saying is a legit give me some other sources. And so we see Paul here now goes to a series of affirmations here of people, significant names. I was in Walla Walla a few weeks ago. We were in a toy store, and there was a poster up on the wall. They had like a sign that was up on on the wall, and it it had a quote on it. And the the quote said, don't believe everything you read on the internet, signed Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) Right, That was the, the quote on the wall. It's a silly quote, but oftentimes, when we go to bolster a claim that we're making, what do we do? We name drop, right? We call on a significant source, an individual. I could rattle off a series of quotes here. Oftentimes, you'll hear that in sermons. Even when I preach sermons, you'll hear me offer the quote of somebody. Uh, it bolsters the claim that we're making. And Paul here is going to draw on some significant names that are going to trigger things for his audience, and particularly for those who are who are calling for a Jewish expression of the Christian faith to be a universal expression here. He says the name Cephas in verse 18, right? We know uh, Cephas uh, probably by a different name, Peter. And so you start dropping names like Peter, and you you start getting into some serious company now. People with eyewitness testimony of having walked with Jesus, uh, having ministered and been called uh, significant figures in the church. And here, uh, what does it say about Cephas? Uh, We pick up later on a rather uncomfortable interaction between them. But at this point in our text, we're going to see that Cephas affirms the message and messenger uh, by being named here. And even later in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter is going to ultimately associate Paul's writings with scripture at one point. So we know that message and messenger have been affirmed by this particular source. But maybe you're saying, well, Peter had his problems, right? Give me another source. Give me, give me another source. And Paul says, okay, let me give you James, the Lord's brother. Let me throw you James here in verse 19. This James is a significant figure in the Jerusalem church. And it's, it's, it's a figure uh, that is, is well-known, would be later martyred, um, traditionally has been held to be the author of the New Testament book, James. And so you add those two folks and you're like, whoa, Paul has just seriously name-dropped some folks that would be in the Jewish expression of the Christian faith, but also significant leaders in the church to legitimize the message and the messenger here. And just in case that was enough, he throws John in there as well. So you got the big three here, right? You got these, this big three group here, uh, along with Cephas and James. These three comprise uh, comp- what Paul refers to as the pillars of the church. He calls them pillars of the church. That's a level of respect that's paid to a group that is also well-respected in the church community. And these are the folks that are affirming the message and messenger here. But look what Paul says about these three. He says, they recognized the grace that had been given to me. They gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship. In other words, they recognized that message. They recognized that messenger as being consistent with the gospel that was revealed to and was being preached by them and other acknowledged authorities, other apostles in the church. Like so many others, these leaders could see what is described by Paul is that the one who was formerly persecuting us is now proclaiming the faith he once tried to destroy. And as such, they join the chorus of those glorifying God because of Paul and that ministry. And we see that in verse 24. So to those who would suggest that the message to the Galatians, uh, Galatian Christians was a corruption, or that it was uh, somehow uh, a lighter version than the one that was preached by apostles uh, throughout the church, if you thought it was kind of a half-gospel, or you thought it was a lesser version here, Paul offers a different picture. Yes, it was revealed to him by Jesus Christ, number one. And number two, he made sure that he got it checked out with the other apostles to make sure, in this particular case, that he was not running or had not run in vain. 100 percent legit not a different gospel the gospel the one being proclaimed can we see that in that text we got that did i say that enough they say message and messenger enough times <laughs> legit do we get legit enough anybody's thinking too legit to quit in their mind right now as we go along here but let's add one more name to the list let's add one more name to the list right we got cephas we got james the brother of jesus right we got john what, what other name could we add to that list? Paul's going to add this name. Isaiah. What? <laughs> There's no Isaiah in the text? Jimmy, are you crazy? There's no Isaiah in the text? Let's add Isaiah to the list here. Isaiah 49 to be specific here. Know what it says in Isaiah 49.1, the second part of that verse. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. And also in verse 5, who formed me in the womb to be his servant. Well, that sounds a lot like what Paul just said to us in Galatians 1.15. If you look at that verse where his calling is while he was in his mother's womb. You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified, Isaiah 49.3. Well, that certainly sounds like Galatians one twenty four, where the people glorified God in response uh, to Paul and his ministry. I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. That's Isaiah 49, 4. That sentiment certainly sounds like Galatians chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul wants to make sure that he has not run in vain. And how about this one here? I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 49, 6. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like someone whose ministry is called to the nations? Called to go to the Gentiles, as Paul describes in verse 2. Paul has located his ministry within that larger theme of the servants in Isaiah's prophecy. But even more, and particularly if we note Simeon's words in use of Isaiah 49, 6, in reference to Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 32, in which he locates the Lord Jesus Christ as that servant in Isaiah. Paul here has identified himself thoroughly with Jesus Christ and Christ's mission. And so you have three names of contemporaries, but then you also have this behind-the-scenes picture of Isaiah that's unfolding of how Paul understands the gospel and how he understands his work as a messenger in the gospel. So I imagine at this point, you're probably thinking and wondering, what does that have to do with my life? (laughs) All that stuff. Right, that tells me a lot about Paul. Gave me Paul his messenger and message. He told me it's legit. Got it. Okay. How does, how does that help me when I'm running the kids around to and fro? How does that land with the busy work that I have in the workplace? Or maybe as I volunteer here around the church or in the community? How does that connect with all those different pieces? Great for Paul, but is it great for me? Well, let me offer a few things for us to consider this morning in closing. The first one is this, and we hear this throughout uh, the first uh, two chapters of Galatians This idea of a changed person. The idea of a changed person. When we talk about the gospel, there's a transformative effect. There's a transformation that can occur in the gospel that is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And I know there could be a number of stories. There certainly would be a number of stories here in this room of people in the room as well as people watching online and people that you know whose lives may have been completely changed, transformed uh, in a 180 uh, because of the gospel. But here in this text, we see... That people become pillars, right? Peter, or Cephas, James, John, they're called pillars. That picture is they are now part of God's temple when you say they're pillars. That people are called into this particular place. That outsiders become embraced insiders. I think about the uncircumcised Titus who's mentioned in this text. He's an outsider, but he's adopted and considered an insider. Not because of anything, any actions that he takes on his part or cuts to his body. And zealous persecutors become even more zealous proclaimers like Paul. That the gospel can transform people's lives and does transform their lives completely. Changes them. We see that in our own day as well. Grace recipients set free from the present evil age. If that message checked out then, it also checks out now. The second thing is this. I'm going to borrow some words from Kevin uh, here at this point. Uh, Kevin is fond of uh, referring to the church as a family of families. It's an expression, if you haven't heard it from him yet, you'll hear it from him at some point. And it's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of what it means for us to come together uh, as one family, but also recognition that we represent many families that come into this space. At the end of our reading, Paul says that the Jerusalem leadership asked him to remember the poor. In other words here, what's being asked here is not just simply for you to go out and make sure you throw some money in the kettle at Christmas Christmastime. Uh, that's, that's not what, what's being asked here. But it's a consistent message that came within the early church in recognition that the, the church in Jerusalem uh, struggled quite a bit uh, through whether it was persecution or famine. Uh, there was oftentimes struggles there. And as the gospel went out into the empire, many of these other locations that were quite wealthy had the opportunity to care for the church universal. Uh, to remember the poor amongst their own community of Christians. And so Paul here is encouraged here, and this is the part he says that he was not only willing to do, he was, he's excited about doing this. This is something that he thought was important. He's encouraged to recognize and uh, not to forget that he's connected, that the church is connected, that we're connected people, that even though we might be families, we're connected as a family, and for us not to forget that peace. So one of the questions here for us as a congregation this morning as we read Paul here and his, his own conviction and commitment to remember the poor is, is how is our memory? How is our remembering that, that we are connected, that we're responsible to one another? Uh, we live in a nation that's divided, that easily gets divided. And oftentimes when we get divided, we pick up our toys and leave, right? And we go off to something else. But that's not living into the responsibility that we have to one another. Sometimes, and I'd say almost all the time, we've got to stay in it we've got to stay in it in the conversation. We have to stay in the struggle and we have to work through and work through those places knowing that I'm talking to my sisters and brothers when I'm having these conversations. That when we do pull ourselves apart, it really is and has the feeling of divorce because there is a destruction of the relationship that occurs there, not just a separation. And so Paul's encouragement here is for us not to forget either, for us to remember the poor here in this congregation, remember one another, but also to remember the church around the world. in in various communities here in our own nation. and The last thing I would note here for us to uh, consider is we have a legitimate faith. We can't underscore that uh, enough here. I'd venture to guess this morning here as I look around this room is that there's not many here that are observing Jewish expressions as part of your Christian faith. Um, I've met people over the years that that's been a significant part of their Christian faith was to have a Jewish expressions to celebrate uh, various practices, uh, to also celebrate festivals and, and all kinds of things, that that's an important part of their faith. But for many of us, it's not. It's, it's, we, we are not Jew, necessarily Jewish, and so we don't uh, find those expressions be particularly meaningful to our faith. But Paul here offers to us, to those of us who aren't those people, uh, those people that are looking to live that Jewish expression, our Christian faith, he offers us some words that are worth noting, and N.T. Wright pictures that, or captures this here with this quote. He says, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit, the believing Gentiles were no longer impure and idolatrous pagans, but were fellow members of the Messianic family. Friends, that's the truth of the gospel. That's the truth for us this morning, here today in the 21st century, that you and me, that we belong, that we're included in what God is doing that's the gospel the Galatian Christians received, and that's the gospel we receive today. So as we consider our lives together and our shared life as a family here together, I want to pose a challenging question for us as, as we finish out here, and it's just this. Is there anybody in our community, in our communion here, that we've made to feel to be an outsider so that we can be insiders? I think it's a question that we have to ask regularly. Is there places where I might be falling into the trap here of creating a certain level of expectation or a way of entering in that requires you to be X, Y, and Z? And if you don't live into that, then you, you don't belong. Christian freedom sings a different tune than that. And we'll hear that as we go through Galatians and continue in this series.